All right. So what are we doing here today, Paul? Student Paul? Good to have you back, Daniel. So for this episode, we're going to be hitting catechesis from more of the pastoral perspective. And so to do that, we have special guest, our father, who are in Alabama, Pastor Ralph Sigler. Hi, uh, good to be on after listening to so many of these. Yeah. So far, all our guests have been family members, right? <laughs> Cousins, yeah. That's our rule. You missed the last episode. We were talking with my cousin Caleb, who is a worship leader in Memphis, about teaching the Christian faith. <laughs> is that the intro song? Do you always do it? I always do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're really seeing behind the curtain now, Dad. If you missed last episode, catechesis essentially is the teaching of the foundations of the Christian faith. And that word comes from the early church. There was a up to three-year training period that would lead converts up to baptism. So that's changed the way it's done in different traditions, different churches through the ages. But that's what we're talking about is what that should look like today in our 21st century context when we think about teaching the essentials of the Christian faith. Um, So for those of you who don't know, Dad is the founding pastor of Harvest Church in Dothan, Alabama, which just in this past fall celebrated 25 years uh, before that, he was in youth ministry for quite a while, is a Asbury Seminary graduate, and also an author, has done some great discipleship curriculum. So why don't we start with you talking a little bit about uh, your background, Dad, and how you learned the foundations of Christianity, what that catechesis process was like in your life. Well, my dad was a pastor. So I grew up in church, uh, Methodist church, and um, a lot of the traditional things, though very evangelical, very biblically-based ministries. Uh, so I grew up in Sunday school and uh, did you know membership or baptism class. I don't remember which one it was. Did they call it confirmation for you? Or? I think it was confirmation class. I think there was a confirmation class. Okay. Because yeah, I'd been baptized as a baby, mm-hmm. so it really wasn't a baptism class. We do that more now. I don't remember it being especially uh, memorable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for yeah it, it wasn't anything extraordinary. Yeah. That was one of the conversations in class is, you know, what age should that be done? How formative is that really it was interesting to hear Caleb say that he felt like that was really formative for him but there were a lot of people in class too that talked about not remembering much from that felt like they were too young so to catch me up having missed the previous yeah episode that basically is just where you go through the catechism and learn like what is the chief end of man or I'm not sure what we're talking about I guess confirmation class yeah some of the churches, like I know when I was the youth pastor at Centenary, I think sixth grade, we took uh, mm-hmm. a, through like a 13-week, a one-quarter study. And yeah, it did focus on the you know basic theology, like uh, basically mm-hmm. who, who is God and okay. you know, what are the real foundations of the faith and how you grow in Christ. And had a little bit on salvation, though I think we interjected a lot more on salvation mm. at, at Centenary because you know, we wanted to know that they— New Jesus. And um, right. so, yeah, it, it is. In fact, I think we used some stuff that was put out by, I wondered if it was Good News put it out. Mm. It was an evangelical group within the Methodist Church. Okay. I'm thinking maybe I we should also just mention that having, you know, having had an experience of giving my life to Christ when I was about eight, mm. you know, certainly changed things because then I had a personal a personal interest in, in all of this. And then in junior high school, started reading through the Bible for the first time. So you know, if you're if you're reading the Bible and pursuing the Lord on your own, you learn a lot. Right. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of self formation just from having a relationship with God. Yeah, and then being in the church and in a youth group and in those mm-hmm. relationships too. Yeah, certainly my experience is organically picking it up just by being really involved in in the church. Mm-hmm. So then you went to Asbury University. Yeah, and uh, majored in Bible. Learned a few things with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then went into youth ministry for uh, nearly 14 years, including four and a half in seminary. And when did you develop personal passion calling for pastoral ministry? When did that start? You know, I guess 
I mean, not thinking of doing being a pastor prof- as a profession, but just having influence in my own youth group mm. um, and being connected closely to some other guys who were following the Lord. You know, you began, I think, to have a, a heart for pastoring, you know, and caring, taking care of each other and, and mm. having an interest in each other's spiritual journey. And, and so I think that then that translated into college. I usually was a part of a prayer meeting, uh, sharing small group while I was in college. Mm. And then I did youth ministry for the first time after my junior year of college uh, for the summer. And then I think then you start, at least I started thinking much more in terms of you know strategy for caring, uh, caring for a group of people. Yeah, that's good. What are some of the formative memories that jump out when you think about? grandpa and that whole aspect of growing up as a pastor's kid around the church all the time? Uh, it was, seemed really natural because not only was dad a pastor, but my granddad was a pastor and it was my mom's my mom's dad. And so then all three of her brothers were pastors and her sister was married to a pastor. So it was, <laughs> you know, we, yeah. it was really seemed very, very natural. And I always seemed very, very important to me. I mean, I, I don't ever think of a time that I thought it was not something very, really significant, you know, that mm. I, I always felt like there was a real purpose in, in what they were doing and, and what we were doing. Uh, cause I always felt, you know, felt a part of it to some degree, even as a kid. Mm. And I, I think a big part of that was just the authenticity in them that they were all real. I, I always grew up, I'm sure y'all did too, hearing about uh, pastor's kids being the worst kids, yeah, pastor's kids rebelling and everything. And I, I think that must come from seeing a lot of hypocrisy mm. in in their family, and I knew uh, that that my dad was real and my granddad was real, and uh, I felt like my uncles were real too. Mm. So I always had a strong concept of of it being extremely important, you know, of having a, a share in it, even though I didn't think for a long, long time that I'd ever be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular reason you thought you wouldn't be? I'm not really sure why I got that. Um, I don't know. I just somewhere had kind of this concept of working a secular job, but knowing that ministry would be the most important. Even even when I was really sold out to the Lord, I had that concept all the way through college. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe part of it was the traditional Methodist thing. I, I didn't really see myself in that. And I don't know why I didn't think more you know, along different lines, but just the kind of the concept I got in my mind was was secular job, but you know, focus on ministry. Hmm. Anybody want to say anything else more on that before we jump into the catechesis topic? Anybody else want to have some input on dad's bio? (laughs) (laughs) I remember when dad was a boy. Maybe I should should say something about how it changed and I got into pastoring. Yeah, that's good. So my father moved and and needed a youth pastor the summer he moved. And I was really seriously following the Lord. And so he worked it out for me to come do summer youth ministry. And so Mm. for me, doing full-time ministry was really one step at a time. When I was, Ron and I were looking at getting married it, it just happened that they were needing a full-time youth pastor. So I prayed about it and felt like that would be a two to three year thing and it ended up being a nine year thing. And <laughs> well. then the Lord led me into seminary and it was the uh, last part of seminary that I felt led to start a church. So really mm-hmm. it was one step at a time for me. I, I never really got this, you know, I'm going to be a pastor for life. Unlike my father, who before he, he says even before he was really saved as a kid, he knew he was going to be a pastor. Wow. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Joel? Yes. Can you carry us over? Yeah. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> so when that process was starting of planting harvest, did you have any thoughts on catechesis again that is really discipleship and how you're going to teach the foundations of the christian faith so what did that look like when uh, the church planting process was going on you know when i did youth ministry we had a heavy emphasis on discipleship and had a really really effective and and pretty intense uh discipleship track for our students 
So that was a little bit of a question. It was a big question, actually, in starting the church, because I really had not seen uh, churches have what I felt like was a really effective discipleship track. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really more of a kind of shotgun approach. Uh, really good live churches did a lot of good things, and if you if you engaged in all of those things, then you know you would learn a lot and you could kind of yeah. grow to maturity. But as far as having a plan to you know th- th- let's do something strategically to help people, and and you know you know I thought more in terms of discipleship rather than every the word catechesis. Yeah, but, uh, the focus was making disciples, and I'd really gotten a strong concept of that. Uh, I think it became really intentional doing youth ministry. Mm. So in starting a church, I, I kind of had the con- idea that, you know, adults are too busy to do anything as demanding. And so for a good while, the focus mm. was getting people in small groups and giving opportunities for events that would help deepen their, their walk with the Lord really doing things to encourage them to get in the Word themselves and spending regular time with God and being in relationship. And uh, we did we did develop early on like the, you know, 101 class and 201 class and 301 class and 401 class that were short-term classes that, that kind of taught the same things to everybody. We could get to go through those. Hmm. But eventually I, I felt like we need to do a more organized, strategic plan discipleship hmm. program where the focus really was what what do people need to to know and experience to become disciples and be confident they're living as disciples and then to be able to make disciples so mm-hmm. it was really with that in mind that I wrote our discipleship uh, which is a small group based you know very much like what I'd done with students yeah and so we put that in a in a small group or a one on one format using using workbooks to kind of drive the process Mm. It definitely goes well with like a Wesleyan heritage. Catechesis is going to be more about practical life than about right. knowledge, just just about the knowledge. And so in our discipleship curriculum, it's definitely more about living as an effective disciple than about learning truths of the Christian faith, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. The strong focus always I've had is if if people really get to know the Word of God with the balance of being in community with the people of God, mm-hmm. then that's the opportunity they have to really walk in truth and, and learn truth. Yeah. I'm interested in that balance between knowledge and experience, I guess. And how do you feel like we balance that well making sure that people really know what it means to be a Christian and know foundational doctrine versus these aspects that you're hitting on around Bible study and having a relationship with God. I think that, like I said, the Wesleyan tradition does have a, have a more, more of a focus on practical theology. Mm. Like all the way when you look back to Wesley and a lot of his writings, like we learn about Wesley from his sermons and from his notes on the Bible, he didn't mm-hmm. write a systematic theology or like a big theological book to like explain his theological beliefs. Mm. If you're kind of like pitting discipleship versus catechesis, which you don't necessarily have to do, but we're kind of comparing the little bit of nuance between right. like focusing more on the effective living versus the knowledge. I think our tradition is going to be more toward living and following Jesus in a practical way rather than just learning where you're yeah. going to have some other theological traditions that are really going to focus on. You've got to get your knowledge, right? Like your theology has to be right. And that's like a really strong focus. Hmm. I do think there's a place for both, obviously teaching people the theology of the faith and like correct beliefs is important, but I mm-hmm. would definitely say it's secondary to truly a loving God and like learning to love and follow Jesus. Yeah. That's so much more important. The heart over the mind, I guess, is how I would put that. Um, but you don't want to forget the mind. Well, and, re- and relationship centered. I mean, it centers on the relationship with God rather than just knowing about him. I mean, obviously getting to know about him enhances your relationship. Right. But if you have the knowledge without the real relationship, then it, it's just empty knowledge. That also works the other way around, though, I would think. Building the relationship increases your knowledge, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely found that 
being in seminary and learning more about theology and tradition increases my relationship with God when it comes to like my morning devotions. And um, just I've been reading through Romans and it's come alive in a whole new way because of my theology of John Wesley class and some of these aspects about justification and uh, sanctification and glorification and what that means. And then I see the words in the Bible and I'm like, oh, I have so much more of a rich understanding of this now. But you're right that the if I didn't have the relationship first, I probably wouldn't be able to absorb the knowledge in the same way. Yeah, I think it kind of boils down to like knowing the why mm-hmm. and knowing the so what. And having the knowledge really informs the reasons for why yeah. we do the things we do and why we believe the things we believe and why the action is a reasonable outflow of what we know. Mm. But then the practical side, as we're calling it, is kind of the, so what? You know, we know this, so what what difference does it make? Yeah. I wonder if you could kind of relate it to like music and then music theory. Like if you're learning an instrument, most people are going to start with like, how do I actually play this instrument and like getting comfortable with the instrument? Yeah. And that's where a lot of the joy is. That's where people see like what you're learning and everything. Mm. And that's like the real fruit of the of music is actually playing the music but then like music theory is very important and it really if you've been learning an instrument and you don't really know music theory there's going to be some gaps in your ability yeah and once you start learning music theory it's like oh wow this is awesome because i i already know kind of how to play but now i just feel like there's so much like substance to what i've already learned and and been able to do you think that's a good analogy that's good. I think uh, sports are pretty much like that too. But yeah, totally. Very good. I think that's a really helpful. I think analogy. driving a car is another one like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else? Oh, that sounds a little dangerous, but... <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Harvest and the way that you've done catechesis or discipleship there, You touched on this a little bit in the area of small groups, but what have you seen to be the most effective arenas for teaching catechesis? And I mean, I assume in some in some respect, it's cumulative. Like you said earlier, if you're involved in a in a good church, you're going to be picking up aspects along the way. But how have you seen the teaching incorporated well through Harvest? The most through small groups, though, there's there's a lot taking place through through Sunday mornings too, and uh, yeah. through sermons. But in small groups, especially discipleship, we get to do a more strategic, you know, direction. And mm-hmm. uh, really, I just, you know, see as as people are living it out in their walk with the Lord and, and you know, that's becoming more and more a part of their life, a bigger part of their life than the driving thing in their life. Mm. They're learning through their experience and through the word and through prayer. And then I think questions come up as they're going along. And then I think you have an opportunity, the church as a whole, to be channeling, you know, to be kind Mm. of giving direction and knowing the essentials of Christianity. Mm. Yeah. For this gospel catechesis class I'm in right now, we read a book called You Are What You Love by James Smith. One of the things he talked about was what he calls cultural liturgy, which is how the culture around us is forming us. So he uses the example of a shopping mall and how you go and everything from the ads to the stores to the layout of the building is liturgizing, teaching, forming your mind about your values and uh, what's important, those kind of things. And when I read that, I really thought about your sermons at Harvest growing up and how there's so much truth incorporated um, that it it's almost like a counter to the way that our world tries to form us. And then on Sunday morning, I would go and I would hear these sermons that are full of biblical truth and kingdom values and what's actually important. Um, so when you're writing your sermons, is that like, what does that process look like? Are you thinking about that idea at all of incorporating truth and informing those values, or does that just come naturally as you're teaching? Um, I think it's present there in forming sermons and, and seeking God about what to speak and how to present it. I mean, definitely it's a part of Christianity that you're you're focusing on truth versus lies and deception, but I think that's a pretty mm. strong concept for me. 
so I lean on that a lot, that um, uh, truth is powerful. Truth dispels deception and lies. The light drives out darkness. So and I'm also really, really aware. I think a lot of, because a lot of my process in deciding what I'm going to speak on is prayer and where is God leading the the congregation and what are the needs, what are the biggest needs. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm pretty aware of, you know, what is the culture trying to teach us that's destructive and that's mm-hmm. deceptive and leading people the wrong way and what's the truth and what brings life and what brings freedom. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty pretty strong consciousness in I think as I'm seeking the Lord for direction. Yeah. So yeah, that would be a big that would be a kind of a, a big value in the in the background. Uh, of of truth and especially versus the world and versus the yeah, things that, right. that the people are hearing and and being taught to value or, or or being urged to value and pursue by the world. I think it's really like when you're when you're following Jesus and you hear somebody point out a common lie of the culture, mm. it really unlocks something in you. Like you really resonate. Like wow, that is definitely a lie that our culture has bought into. Yeah. And it's really important to counter that. I feel like for me personally, if I go a week or two without a Sunday morning service or or sermon to reinforce those truths, it's so easy for just the American dream mindset to set in of need to be working on being successful with business, have a nice house and neighborhood for kit, you know, that whole, those whole values that are so easy to creep in, I think, just from our culture. But what I find is that when I engage in sermons that are full of truth, it rewires my brain back on what actually matters. Yeah, and the message yesterday, you know, it was kind of a follow-up to the Spiritual Life Conference we just Mm. had. And what's especially valuable about that that we need to hold on to and defend and then move forward with. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the statements I came across, and I can't even remember who I got it from, but, you know, worship's describing worth. And if you're not seeing the worth of God, you give too much worth to lesser things. Mm. And so just that idea of why is it so important that we have these times when worship is so powerful, Mm. which happens in our conferences. I mean, we really focus a lot on the presence of God in worship every Sunday, but always the conferences, for whatever reasons, uh, and especially the night, night services, between 700 and 850 people there each night. It seemed like the whole congregation is engaged. I mean, you just feel this power of engagement and the power of the presence of God in those. Why is that so important? And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, there's a number of reasons why it's important. But the truth, one of the truths that I, I kind of was able to articulate preparing this message is that we become so aware of his worth. Mm. You know, everything else is pale compared to him. He's the most valuable. He's the most powerful. He's the most wonderful. He's mm. what we're made for. He's the one we're created for. There's none like him. We all revolve around him. And when you get that whole picture in worship, one of the effects of it is diminishing everything else. It's giving you true value. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, that was just a way of something something you kind of know instinctively, but articulating and speaking that truth is kind of like, yes, that's one more reason those times are so important. It really does center him as the most valuable, you know, our real goal. That definitely goes back to the idea from this book, You Are What You Love, where he's contrasting, you know, that the phrase, you are what you think. Um, but he's talking about, it's about what you love and specifically who you love that ends up forming who you become. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a good characterization of Harvest, that there's been mm-hmm. that priority of ordering people's love rather than just ordering people's like beliefs. Yeah. Like for these people in your class, Paul, that talk about like some of their catechesis, not sticking or like, they don't really remember much of it, whether it's because they were too young or because like their heart wasn't in it, Mm -hmm. you know, like for so many people learning the truths, like that's still important, but if your heart's not there, then it's not going to have the effect and it's not going to like stick. Um, People so often talk about college students, like when you see like second career college students versus like college students that you just have that like kind of stereotype of their parents are paying for it and they don't care and they don't want to be there, like how much less they get out of it versus these like second career people who are paying for it themselves. They feel like they're 
really called to some new profession or something and they just have this drive and this love for what they're learning, how much more they get out of the the mm. actual content, you know, how much yeah. they're able to learn it because their heart's there. Daniel, you think, Daniel? do you want to say anything before <laughs> we move on? Uh-oh, it's getting late. <laughs> but also, haven't we all heard these stories of people who be, have a real conversion experience and really do come to faith and believe and then but they just don't know some of these simple things like you shouldn't still have these other idols in your home or things like that. And they're, you know, you have to tell them and they're like, Oh, okay. I didn't know. I'll fix that. Or Mm -hmm. so that's something that goes beyond just having things naturally arise. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think so. And I think the best way to deal with a lot of those things is if you have somebody who's actively discipling those people, Mm -hmm. because then like you can deal with those things on a more specific basis yeah, or even even just simple things like the concept of having discernment what you take in to your you know entertainment, hobbies, music, movies, books, etc. I'm sure eventually, and the and the hope would be sooner than later, but there would be conviction from the Holy Spirit. But it seems to me that a lot of times people need to sort of be uh, have those things pointed out to them mm-hmm. during the lunch sessions so this Mm -hmm. we just had our church uh conference is what dad was talking about and we do like four days and then during those weekdays we have lunch meetings that are more like teaching and usually the speaker does something that's a little bit more on the theological side or like i said like a teaching side rather than academic yeah a little bit more academic the teacher this year was talking about christology so just went through like who is jesus what did he do Mm. and People always really appreciate that Hmm. um, because we don't have that focus as much of like, Hmm. here's just the teaching, just what we believe, why it's important. And people love it. Hmm. And so I do think there's a place for that. But one of the issues is like most people are not willing to give much time. If you have people once a week or twice a week, you don't just want your focus to be like information. Like here's the information and like teaching Hmm. of, of the Christian faith, you know? And so when you have a time like a conference where we have them five main services and then three additional, like we can just say, hey, these three services, we're just going to do teaching Mm -hmm. because people are giving that time. And so you have more space. We usually want to get people at least twice a week at Harvest. We want people to be Sunday morning and then into a small group at least once a week. And so hopefully during the small group time, especially in the sermons, there's definitely theology in there and Mm -hmm. the right truths in there, but it's not the primary focus. Yeah, it's not supposed to be because it's more important to be talking about practical living and learning the Bible, learning how to live as a follower of Jesus, ordering Mm -hmm. your heart. Those sorts of things are more primary to preaching. And then in small groups, I still think the more important thing is going to be like accountability and relationships over just learning these like theological truths. And so Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is people who want to learn a lot of that stuff they're going to find it on YouTube and find it like in books and stuff a lot of times. Or there are classes that we have that are more focused on that arena. But I guess I was just thinking about how much people like it during the conference. Hmm. But it's we don't often have space to give to it like like I wish we did, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, or they can listen to podcasts, maybe. That's right. Comment, like, and subscribe. With the youth group, one of the things that I've tried to do is incorporating just a really small amount of theological teaching in our discipleship program. So Mm. with the youth also, we have like a main service on Wednesday nights, then small groups on Sunday nights. So the same kind of balance. And then we basically have like a, like a leadership discipleship group that meets after small groups. So students go to their small groups, which is mostly accountability focused and discussion focused Mm. relationships. Then they come to discipleship if they want to. And usually I'll spend like 15 minutes talking, teaching some sort of more theological component. So we'll do like Christology or who is the father or who is the Holy Spirit or what is the church. Mm. And that gives them like 15 minutes each week, which is not a lot, but they really, because, and I think it's partially because it's elective. It's a lot of the leaders because they're held to some really high standards. They really enjoy getting a little bit of that more like academic, but that's how I'm doing it in the youth group to try to get some of that material in to the students Yeah. Um, without having to like take up another night or like do an hour long mm. lecture or anything like that. Mm. Just like really bite sized. Um, so at least it's something. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things we used to do at Harvest was often on Sunday nights, there would be a little bit more of like a teaching series mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So they would do like a book of the Bible, like study of, you know, Galatians or whatever, and do a really detailed biblical study. Mm-hmm. Or I know there was a time where they did a series on like cults and religions. Mm-hmm. So really hitting a little bit more on the information side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good place for it also. If the norm was Sunday morning, you know, for, for your sermon and worship, Wednesday night for your like accountability and relationship, small group, mm-hmm. and then Sunday night if you want to come for the more like theological teaching, mm-hmm. I think that would be a good potential. Yeah, and there was a time, I mean, we did try for a long time to intentionally leave Sunday night for more teaching type stuff. And then over time, we got had so many small groups, I mean, like 130 of them. So, so many things have moved on to that, but we could still, we could still do that more of a focus and small groups actually can move around it. So shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk with you some about pastoral offices. So this was a big section of one of the books we read in this class called Liturgy, Learning, and the Life Cycle, I think. Hold on. That sounds right. Get get these references right. Here it is. (laughs) This was your book, Joel. Thanks for letting me borrow it. You're welcome. $298? What in the world? That's how much I paid. That must be a misprint. Paperback says almost $300. Hardcover says it's $14 (laughs) on Amazon. That's weird. Some people really like that paperback. <laughs> I guess so. Well, if the school like dictates that everyone has to get the paperback for some reason, I don't know if they would say that. <laughs> We're going to be doing a lot of bending of books in this class. So I don't want anyone bring it in. <laughs> so a book called Liturgy and Learning Through the Life Cycle. And a big section of that book was centered around what they called pastoral offices. And these are big moments in the lives of congregants like marriage, birth, death, you know, retirement, and how as pastors we can make these events significant and recognize the importance from a Christian worldview of these different transitions in life. So I just wanted to touch a little bit on some of these and how and how you through pastoring for many years have seen these be significant. So why don't we start with marriage? So I know you've done a lot of weddings, including mine and I guess all three of ours. So when you're doing a a marriage, for example, how have you been able to bring in some of these foundational teachings of the Christian faith and also just make it something more significant than the, the world has to offer? Yeah, and partly depends on where the people are spiritually. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a place now where I don't do a whole lot of weddings for people who are not really following the Lord because we have a staff and all. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I would say when you don't know, of course, we're trying to to move them into through, through premarital counseling, right. uh, an awareness that you know the key to having a good marriage is going to be God blessing your relationship, and that's going to be in following Christ, and also that if the two of you are determined that you're going to obey God, that you can work through anything, mm. and God can bring blessing even through all the difficulties, and uh, then try to interject some of the statistics, you know, of, of people who are actively following Jesus and uh, how much more successful odds-wise their marriages are and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, if it's people who are already following Jesus, then, you know, we want to share the same thing, but also... You know, there's opportunity, and I often share even in 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 the wedding ceremony. I want to talk some about how this is the picture. You know, God has given us a picture of all time, all ages, to all people mm. of the kind of relationship He wants with His people. Mm. That it's a faithful covenant relationship of love, and that we we're sharing in that that God He's has led. You know, hopefully they know that God has led them to this. Yeah. And uh, this is his plan for them, and that together he wants to use them in a significant way. You know, a lot of times I get to share with them the whole idea of being used more significantly together than individually. And so God's called you into this, and um, but but also that you are that you are a picture as imperfect as it is of the kind of relationship Christ wants with the church. Mm. And that makes you know how you how you carry out your marriage extremely important. It's got eternal implications, it has implications for what the world sees around you. And even though you're not going to do it perfectly, by the grace of God, as you're following Him, He's going to use that mm-hmm. in, in eternal ways. So I guess that's that's some of it. And I get to share kind of varying parts of that. I try to share just a little bit 
when I'm doing the the marriage to, to say a few words about that. Are there any weddings that you've officiated that stick out to you? Uh, yeah, Not a one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for for a number of reasons, obviously because of our relationship, and so it's really special to get to to do your son's weddings. But I think also knowing what y'all know going into it, I think that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really uh, and and pro- probably experienced that to a degree with some other people I've I've known real well and knew that they were just all out following Jesus and had some history in their walk with the Lord. But mm. uh, with y'all's knowing what you already know and what you already understand, I think there's a whole lot more consciousness that this is being done by God. Yeah, you know, that this is where God's led you. He's He's opened the doors. He's brought these relationship this this relationship together and he's brought y'all to the point of of that y'all are going to be joined together for life and i know you have a whole lot more understanding of how god's going to work through your marriage and the significance of it and the spirit just breathing his life through you together and so that makes it definitely a lot more special to get to do the wedding when when you know that yeah mm-hmm. I think one thing for at least me, probably all of us, kind of getting back to that like raised in a pastoral household thing is not realizing how many of our peers rarely went to weddings and even more rarely went to a funeral. Mm-hmm. Like, especially when we were younger. And like to us, that was very normal, both. And I think looking back, I definitely believe that I picked up a lot of theology, I guess, or at least perspective on being pulled along or I don't know, you know, having to go to funerals <laughs> uh, pretty regularly. I mean, not, you know, but definitely more than a normal mm-hmm. kid, often for people who I barely knew who they were mm-hmm. just because dad was doing the funeral and mom was going to support and we were too small to be left home. Mm-hmm. So we went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the weddings that from my childhood that really sticks in my mind as formative was Doug and Joni. Uh-huh, yeah. So for listeners, yeah, that's a pretty dramatic one. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So for listeners, we had a, a couple in our church who chose to get married uh, basically as part of the church service, right? It was on a Sunday morning. Oh yeah. And that was, that was my idea. <laughs> uh, they didn't ask. <laughs> they signed off on <laughs> they it. They didn't ask. Yeah. They didn't ask that their wedding could be a part of the, the service. But yeah, he was, <laughs> Uh, he was he was our youth pastor part time when we were still meeting in the school, and so you know they they met she met Jesus at Harvest. Mm. So the church was so much a part of their lives, their relationship, and so when they talked about doing it, they didn't have strong ideas about the wedding itself. And mm. I, I just thought about the idea of talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the whole focus of the uh, bridegroom and the bride of Christ and then doing their wedding. Mm -hmm. And they were instantly all on board when I brought up the idea. (laughs) I think that was such a great image, too, of how the church should be present and should be committed to a marriage. And uh, it being a covenant between, obviously, the them and between them and God, but also between them and the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, so for people who are listening, we did. Of course, we had announced ahead of time, so most of the people knew that their wedding was taking place. But people who knew them, right? Yeah, yeah. There were obviously people there who didn't know that was going to happen. But I mean, that was back when we were probably I don't know what we were running in church, but maybe two hundred and fifty or so, something like that. Mm. So yeah, after preaching on the bride of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, I said, so now we're going to have a wedding. And so <laughs> then we just went into their wedding and did their wedding and. Uh, Closed the service and had the reception out. We were meeting in schools. So there was big open areas, and we had the reception out there. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was pretty neat, pretty unique. It was very cool. We haven't done it since. It's maybe time to try again. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. And Look back at the net. Wasn't there a, a couple that asked you to do the Princess Bride marriage thing at one point? <laughs> too? Yeah. I you know I had that brought up several times because I I referred to it in sermons before, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah there was uh, one couple I can remember especially in particular that wanted me to do it in the in the wedding and I said no nah. I said I'll, I'll do it in the rehearsal we can do it in the rehearsal but not and I, I don't want I didn't want to make light of of the wedding ceremony yeah which I was I, I felt like that was going to do that too much that it was going to yeah, I mean, that's of course they weren't thinking of, of that. Trivializes. I, I was gonna tri- yeah, I thought it was gonna kind of trivialize mm. the importance of what we were doing. 
I think when we're talking about all of these life events, but like marriage, you have the way that as pastors and leaders, we we can utilize the marriage ceremony to like impart truth and to teach and to like do this shaping of people. But then also the reverse, like the shaping that has been done mm. and the teaching that people already know, how much that enriches mm. the experience itself. Yeah, right? that's true. I think both of those things are true. And I think what dad's ta- mentioned about what he does in, in marriage ceremonies is really important. Like when you're tying the marriage to mm. the story of God mm-hmm. uh, throughout history, that <laughs> is truth. Like that's what the Bible teaches that marriage is. Yeah, And so it really adds a lot of shaping and context to what's happening Mm, right but then also like when people truly believe that already like what he's talking about with our weddings i think is part of that he already knew that we already understood a lot of that and what it all meant and so that then provides more significance to the wedding itself when you Mm -hmm. when you know that that background's already there Mm -hmm. and i think we have the advantage in our culture that a lot of these milestones in life birth and death and weddings and whatever else milestones they have a lot of that christian context still Mm -hmm. and people want that they want meaning in those areas of their life but i also think we're at a place where we can see and we a lot of us have experienced weddings where people are trying to remove themselves from that Mm -hmm. and you feel just the triviality it feels empty you feel the like emptiness of like what they're trying they're like okay when you've removed the, the meaning of this, it's so mm-hmm. empty and meaningless what you're trying to do. Yeah. Another one of these ideas that was in the book is there was a chapter on uh, moving or blessing a new home, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, have you experienced that at all? Yeah. In fact, there's, there's somebody who's supposed to get back with me sometime soon now to go and uh, and bless their home. So okay. I'm really glad to do that. Yeah. What does that look like usually? Uh, we usually um, will just anoint the uh, main doorway, mm. the top. Uh, you have to be careful with that oil because it can react with the paint eventually and you get a little dot. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you, you know, it's, I'm tall enough to reach the top of the door frame. So I just... <laughs> I just put it on top where nobody's going to see it anyway if it makes a spot. <laughs> but um, anyway, just a little practical, um, uh, yeah, the practical point, point there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I usually just, and I'll invite them to to anoint, you know, all the all the doorways. Mm. There's usually three, three or four doorways in most homes coming in and out. So uh, if they want to, we, we'll go to all of them. Mm. Or I can tell them they can just do it on their own if they want to. And, and uh, I've known people who do all their windows as well. Mm. And really, we're uh, dedicating it to, to the home to Christ, just recognizing it's a gift from God and that all that we have belongs to Him. Mm. And so we're, you know, if they're not the first, if they didn't build the house, we always pray against any dark spiritual influences in the house that anything would be would be cast out and gone mm-hmm. and then we just invite the spirit to be there and to be lord in that and that he would be exalted and that it would be a place where he's welcome mm-hmm. and where it's easy to hear him where the peace of god dwells i think it's important to try to take advantage of whatever si- different situations in life we can take advantage of and a lot of times we talk about those as far as like encountering people with the gospel Right. We're, we try to be really strategic about people when they move to a new spot, new location, new city, they're more open to the gospel. When people are like starting school again, a new year, hmm. like these are strategic times where people are open to the gospel. And as a church, we're very aware of those times and like trying to use it strategically. But also just taking advantage of the times to like encounter people who are already saved with the gospel hmm. and like the continuing work of the gospel. And I think this is one of those times where if you can present to people, hey, if, if that becomes a normal thing, when you move, like we'd love to have a pastor come and pray over your home, mm. then you're just encountering the gospel. You're like infusing the gospel into more of their life. Yeah. And I think that's a really healthy thing as far as shaping the individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And reemphasizing the significance of keeping everything in perspective, having God at the center of all of our life's mm. ebbs and flows and moves and courses. I just would encourage people to do that. Um, like birthdays, I think any birthday, you should have like a prayer over the person whose birthday it is, like a blessing mm. over the birthday E, <laughs> whoever's birthday it is. Um, the, like, the born. <laughs> the born. <laughs> yeah. And I've done a lot of businesses too. 
dedicating businesses in a similar way. Mm. Yeah, any of those events. Why, when it comes to buildings and things, do we do the entrance? Is that just I think a because symbolic? Because it's symbolic. Yeah, mm. symbolic of what you're allowing to enter. Mm. So why oil? Why oil? Well, we know they anointed with oil in the Bible, and it's, it's, it has a symbolism of the Holy Spirit. And so I guess that's the main reasons. I don't know of another reason. Okay. What about uh, retirement? Have you seen it or experienced any ways of recognizing that through the church and making that a significant time? You know, not not really other than, of course, praying with people when they're if it if it comes up like how to spend their lives primarily praying for the next phase mm. and for you know the blessing of knowing God better and continuing to be transformed and you know bearing much fruit that God would direct the time i mean i think that's a good idea i think uh, there's some great ideas coming out of this whole conversation for how to get across to the congregation more to take advantage of all these opportunities mm. I do feel like, which I've talked about a good bit with our church in the last year and a half or so, that retirement is this an, an amazing opportunity mm-hmm. that most of the world has never had uh, in all of history, where you have people usually healthy who are not having to work anymore. They've got a completely open schedule. You know, I haven't really come into all the details of how, but I know one of the things I have down for hopefully before the end of this year to begin to deal with is how to mobilize our people who are retired mm-hmm. and um, draw them more into ministry because we have this little army uh, <laughs> of people with free schedules wow. and yeah. a lot of them love the Lord, but they need direction. <laughs> but yeah, so a lot of times if it comes up, I, I happen to mention that they just retired or they're going to retire or I, or I go to a retirement party every now and then. And uh, then there's an opportunity to specifically pray those things. And, of course, one of the big things is, you know, we believe, of course, that God is actually giving his blessing. So something's happening. We aren't just saying words. But right. also in all those incidents is putting back into people's minds, God has a plan mm-hmm. for this part of my life. You know, God God has a plan for my home. You know, it's a reminder my home is not my own. It's, it's his. And it's going to function right if, if he's present and he's served and he's bringing blessing. And God wants to move in my workplace, mm-hmm. and it's His, not mine. And and then the retirement, same thing. You know, this is not. I'm not done, and now it's time to just spend a few years focused on me. There's a tremendous opportunity. You know, I got to find God's plan in this phase of life too. Uh, honor Him with with this part of my life, and then of course people are. Uh, wondering what this part of phase of their life is going to bring. Mm-hmm. Is there real meaning in my life now? You know, what am I supposed to do? In these last years, of, late years of my life, you know, being getting the opportunity to be reminded that, yeah, as long as God is has you on this earth, there's a plan, there's a purpose, mm-hmm. and and really there's a great opportunity mm-hmm. in this phase. Uh, that's really really important and a blessing for them too. Let me share one thought, and then I need to run because I have to work today. <laughs> uh, so last Sunday was Mother's Day, and so. Uh, it's fresh in my mind how we have mothers stand and we would pray for them mm. on Mother's Day. We do that with fathers on Father's Day. These different times where we often when we're starting school back, we have everybody who's going back to school or teachers stand and we bless them. Yeah, Just anything like that you can do where you're praying over people in these phases of life, I think is really significant. We could do like a Sunday of retired, like if you're retiring this year or have retired this year, stand mm. and we're going to pray a blessing over you. Mm. Anything like that you can do where you're acknowledging a, a season yeah. or acknowledging, you know, like graduations and stuff like that that's happening in people's lives, giving it to the Lord and then blessing them as well, I think is really significant. Yeah. So I got to go. Okay. Thanks, Joel. You know, you, you also mentioned that the whole thing of, of whenever, ba- babies. Sorry, whenever you're done, you can just hit this square. Okay. And we're kind of especially focusing on that this year. We had uh, a staff person that kind of brought up multiple times to the year last year. I think their concern with uh, adults in their twenties hmm. being so disengaged, and you know, always. I mean, my whole life, that's the is you know, the period of life people are least engaged in the church. Right. And of course, one is they're going out from under their parents and their families' plans and traditions. And then also, twenties is is so you know your your station in life tends to fluctuate so much that twenties are not around as much. Uh, or as long, because, you know, usually you have them in the church here and then they're going to college and then they're off to another job mm. and then they're off to this or they get married or, you know, whatever. It's just in flux. But I just kind of finally, after I heard that several times, decided, well, you know, we, we let's give some special focus to mm. 20s. 
And the point it hit, you know, hit me where we have the best opportunity to bring them to the Lord and to church is when they become parents. Yeah. Which, you know, many of them in their 20s become parents. Now, we want to do some other things, too, for the ones that are, you know, still single and the ones that are married without children. But the most obvious, biggest that stood out to me is when they become parents, suddenly their perspective on life changes. Then mm-hmm. I, I just looked up, because I knew there were stats on the advantages of having your kids in church. And so yeah. I found right off Harvard study 2018, you know, that kids who are raised in church uh, are happier. Mm. They make better decisions, healthier decisions, uh, about five different things like that. So there's a real outreach opportunity yeah. when people are becoming parents. I think all these moments really point back to the idea of the the family of God, you know, at baptism, entering into this new family, new people group, and how with that, you know, birth, marriage, moving, ordination, retirement, death, all these things can take on a new significance, but also be mm-hmm. communal, not something that's just about you and your biological family, but really something to celebrate and recognize with the entire family of God. So we could probably talk a, a good bit more about these other moments. I know funerals would be fascinating, so maybe we'll do a, a future episode or something on that. Well, this is really good, and I think it does add on really well to the conversation we had with Caleb. I hope that with both of these conversations together, people have a more comprehensive view and outlook on this idea of catechesis and teaching the faith and you know knowledge versus experience and relationship and some of these key aspects of being a Christian and and walking with God. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Dad. Enjoyed it. It It's great. Any closing thoughts from either of you? I'm just thinking that always um, the form helps channel the substance. You always have to have the substance Mm. and never lose that and just have the form. And I think that's where people get disillusioned with a lot of things that are more traditional uh, when they've seen them lose the substance. Mm. And so we have to always focus, I think, on the substance and then know then the form is going to be valuable in maximizing uh, the direction of of the reality. It's interesting that I feel like that can happen anew with each change in form, whereas like the whole move to contemporary came out of the a reaction to seeing like us the form missing substance in the traditional model. Mm-hmm. I think over time you can get back to that same place where now the form has changed the contemporary, but you can also be missing the substance there mm-hmm. and just be doing the same, doing it for the sake of tradition or how people think it looks or it sounds good or whatever it is. Definitely. So that's uh that's every generation has that responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks again. And we will talk to you all again soon in the next one. I'm writing our anthem in A minor or A sharp minor or whatever it was. <laughs> it's a long process. <laughs> right. There is no A sharp. The fans are clamoring for that. Well, there is an A sharp. Uh, anthem. There's not an A sharp. There is an A sharp. Uh-huh. I don't know how to write music. Our Korean fans were asking about it. <laughs> Ask about what? The, music? the anthem, yeah. <laughs> what does Daniel have on his head? Looks like some sort of... Uh... Cup holder. <laughs> <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs>